0: Welcome to the Circle Podcast. My name is Gethin Nadin, Director of Employee Wellbeing at Benefex. I am the guest host for this episode, and I'm delighted to be joined by a face that you're very familiar to lots of you, I'm sure, uh, John Amici. Welcome, John. Thank you. Uh, For those who don't know John, he is a psychologist, a New York Times bestselling author and former NBA basketballer. John is also the Chief Executive Officer at Amici Performance Systems, an organization that uses psychological expertise and corporate experience to solve intraceable people problems and to create thriving workplaces. Um, John, you and I have spoken at many of the same events, but I've never had the chance to meet you. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to meet you in our in our new normal.
1: It's uh, a pleasure.
0: It's a pleasure. It's been a busy week or so for you. It has. I
1: think uh, a lot of people have, um, a, a lot of people in workplace, especially in HR, have been dealing with the fallout of the not only COVID and And the adjustments around Covid and attrition and mental health. But then, in addition to that, you've got this explosion that has followed the the racism and the the police brutality in the United States. So it's just been full on commenting on that and trying to help people understand how do you how do you work this twofold solution, which is the individual behaviors that you need to get from people the individual change and then the organizational change that needs to happen, which is often, you know, very complex.
0: Um, And I guess it's what's quite interesting, I think. So from my position what I've seen, you know, there are these corporations taking a stand on social issues, which has become a relatively new phenomenon. And I Mm -hmm. I personally think there's this growing need for consumers and employees of organizations to take more of a stand on the things that are important to them. Um, And I guess we've seen over the last couple of weeks that many brands have issued statements acknowledging the racism faced by black people. Um, some have changed their corporate logos, like Nike's Just Don't Do It. Um, is this a good start? And kind of what do these organizations need to be doing next?
1: I, I always, I mean, gestures and symbols are important, but they are usually rather impotent if they're not backed up by action. Um, I think one of the, it's, it's a really dangerous step for an organization to take if they don't realize the implications of it. So there's no good making a glorious, outspoken, uh, wonderfully, uh, kind of, it's right tapping into the mood of the moment. Kind of statement from a CEO from an organization. If internally you look at your stats and and you don't have any senior black people, you, you, your pipeline is absent black people. The black people in your office are there to clean when the lights go off at night. It's just there's a there's a hypocrisy to that. That and the, the important part here is that that's a hypocrisy that employees themselves are, are recognizing and calling their own organizations out on.
0: And do you think, so I guess what I'm quite interested in is my journey into uh, experiencing and understanding my own white privilege started a couple of years ago when I read uh, a report about luck. And it was basically saying that in luck in America and kind of understanding luck and what makes somebody lucky, they basically were saying, if you were a white man to start off with, you were already significantly predisposed to being lucky. So it was, getting the job, winning the lottery, getting better healthcare, finding love, all of those things because that was the world we lived in. So that was the kind of starting point for me. And then it also led to, I guess what we're seeing lots of people quite rightly go through now, some pretty uncomfortable conversations with myself about my own privilege and how I've either used that to my advantage or acknowledging that that has given me a leg up. Um, And also times when have I been racist and inevitably I probably have, whether that's intentional or otherwise. Um, and so do, do you think organizations are in that position as well, where they need to really take stock and be honest with themselves about what they've done up until this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think in almost every scenario, an audit of some description is a good way to start. You need to know where you stand, where you are. <clears throat> I've been telling people in the last couple of weeks now that for in terms of organizations, there's no good just starting with initiative, you know, kind of shotgun initiatives we're going to do this and this and this and this what you have to do is understand what is the combination of sometimes quite banal and and benign policies and procedures ways of doing things values and things like that that are combining to create inequity so that you can understand what's a tactical and then strategic approach to solving this problem i think the interesting part is that when you do talk to a lot of organizations you suddenly realize that so much can be done so quickly so so in the same way that covid Uh, created a scenario where many organizations had lied for the last 10 years. You can't work remotely. We can't have flexible working. We can't do this, that, or other. You've got to wear a suit. All of this nonsense. And then COVID comes along, and in a matter of weeks, all of that's gone. And that, that actually, I don't think organizations realize that just with COVID alone, they're going to have to deal with a real sense of betrayal from their employees when we do start moving in a new direction. I don't think the new normal is a good description of that. I can talk about that later if you want. But when we do start coming through this, the sense of betrayal once we're through the crisis will be there because people suddenly realize I struggled with my children, with childcare. I struggle with my family and work-life balance. I couldn't even get time off to pick up an important delivery. And then when it suited you, you could install a Bloomberg machine in my office, in in my home, sorry. You could get me another big screen for my home. You could upgrade my Wi-Fi at home. So the reason it hasn't been done is because they didn't want to do it. And when you look at the issues here around race, there's a significant amount that many organizations can do really, really quickly. It's strategic, it's tactical, it's smart, but it will prompt the question, why didn't we do this a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, what is so profound about this murder of a black person in America that didn't resonate with you in 1991 with Rodney King? And and I think there's a real openness to critique there, especially in this day and age where I think it used to be that employers and brands felt that people should be aligned to their purpose. Whereas nowadays, employees and colleagues expect that brands Aligned to their individual purpose, so things like Black Lives Matter, things like the environment, and such, uh, and mental health, and these other areas. So I, I think there's there's quite an interesting collision coming post crisis, because it these these things won't happen while there's still so much tension and crisis and risk. But if you look eighteen months down the line, as the economy hopefully starts to recover again, that'll be the point where people will start saying, "Right, you thought I forgot, but I didn't
0: forget." Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's fascinating. It's kind of that employee activism I think we've seen on quite large scales even before this happened. So I guess it's yeah. yeah, I think I would agree with you that it's the employees are driving that agenda and the employers are reacting to it. But I think it's a I think that's a really good point that, yeah, as employers are we questioning we're doing this because our employees want it. But why weren't we even looking at this anyway? Because it's this is not political, right? This isn't about politics, this isn't about um, values and brands, and trying to get consumers or train the right employees—it's—it's it's much much deeper than that. It's much more fundamental, isn't it?
1: It should be. I, I'm not sure that even as you said it, I was like, hmm. I think it might be about that for some for some organisations, but I, it shouldn't be. It should be about performance. I'm not interested in having more women in organisations because I somehow think women's brains are so special and different, and oh, they'll bring compassion to the table or other such. Really patronising stuff. Yeah. I'm interested in bringing as many perspectives, as many different types of brilliance to the table as possible, and then demanding the managers around me are good enough to curate that brilliance. That is the future world of work. That's what it's going to count. Brands are going to be less important. The brand of individual managers is going to be key because it'll be like this, Gethin. This will be our relationship, and maybe, maybe I'm in my, maybe I'm in Cardiff. And you're in London. And it's not the it's not the colors of your logo, of your company's logo that attracts me to you anymore. It's the fact that when I talk to you and I tell you about some challenge and you don't just push and push and push, but you're a manager who makes me feel, I'm like, I don't care. You can pay me five pounds an hour more, but I won't work for somebody else.
0: I think yeah, well, it works. I've been at Benefix for nine years and it, well, every time anyone asks me, it's because my manager cares about me. I report to the CEO, the CEO cares about me. And I could have taken more money elsewhere. I live three hours away from the office. I've got a terrible commute. Yeah, because I feel like I'm valued as, and treated as an individual. Um, that plays a big part. So I think it's because it's interesting about because I've I thought a lot about personalization in the workplace and how we treating people as individuals was the way forward. So I guess does does race become an issue if you're treating people as individuals? It's oh yes. Of, Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. The worst thing that an organization can do at this point is is to join the "I don't see color" gang.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it's just so patronizing, and it's ridiculous. It's 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 ridiculous. If you don't see me as a black person, then you 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 don't see me as a white six nine massive person, I am a different person with a different set of experiences. The world has regarded me entirely differently. And if you don't recognize that, it's so absurd. It's even the homogenization of it. I, as a as a person who is mixed heritage, my father's Nigerian, my mother's white and from Hyde, and and even that makes me different than someone who is second generation Windra from, from Jamaica. So the idea that even the color of my skin makes me the same as another black person, this is why so many of these programs for for, uh, non-traditional people in workplaces fail, because they don't actually see the individual. They see a problem to be solved. We see this with women all the time, right? The deficit model approach. Well, here's some training to, to help you be more assertive in meetings. And then they take that training, and then they get a bit more senior. And then, well... Here's some training to stop you being so grating. And it's like, we, it's, it's like this constant, instead of the thing I said the other day, which I think is really the approach that, that workplaces need to consider. We can either spend our time trying to armor black people, to armor women, to armor minorities, or we can spend our time de-weaponizing the environment in which they inhabit. Right? So, and I think it's that simple. Uh, either we're going to tell women this is what you have to do this is how you have to dress this is how you have to talk in order to be taken seriously don't have kids don't talk about family don't be emotional etc etc or we create an environment where we say you know what different kinds of brains come with different types of personalities and different types of experiences and either I want that brilliance
0: or I don't interesting it's um the other point I was going to talk to you about was um and it kind of leads on from that, is that many organisations will have those policies in place around racism, usually part of some diversity strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, They probably rarely, if ever, tackle the less overt, insidious acts of racism. They don't promote everyday activism. They don't promote employees to be anti-racist. All that stuff we clearly need more of. Is it time we upgraded that? Is it time we got away from what that legal bare minimum is and created something above that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I've been talking to my clients about this for years. We, there's no point in looking at compliance. Compliance has never been a measure uh, for performance. It's a measure to avoid failure and to reduce risk, but it is not a measure for performance. And that's where I never really understand it because I just want to win. I'm, I'm not here to, to, to celebrate this person or that person. I want to win and I want all the people who could possibly help me win around me at all times. So, to me, this, this compliance level is so banal, it's so dull. And it never, it never meets the burden of, of dignity. Because if, if I know that how I'm being treated is to avoid me suing you, this is, I am doing this to avoid a class action lawsuit, not because you are an individual worthy of dignity who should feel like they can contribute without sacrifice, in this workplace, you know, without sacrificing your identity in this workplace, I think that's where we're trying to get to. I know it's energy expensive for for individual managers, especially for leaders, for people to construct policy and procedure and have people meet it. But if you do it, you do create the environment that you talked about, in where you just don't want to leave Mm. Where you suddenly look and you think, you know what, a bit of personal inconvenience to, to, to deal with these, to be surrounded by these people. Who, who who make me feel respected and welcome and like I belong. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want that. It's not that I don't want to pay people a lot, but we know that you could, you know, you mentioned it yourself. People get offers that are better other places, but they're like, no, that's the person, not that's the brand. That's yeah. the person I want to work for.
0: Interesting. Um, I've written before about diversity and its impact on employee well-being and researching for an article I wrote a few months ago about black employees and mental health, um, I found last year that one in three UK adults experienced or witnessed racism at work uh, and around a third of those employees have been subject to racism, say that they've also taken a period of sick leave as a result. Um, that racism is obviously is having a negative effect on the lives of black employees, Um mm-hmm. We know that there's research out there that says racism shortens lives and hurts the health of black people. Um, And I also found that um, there was a 73% increase in suicide attempts among black US teens in 2019. With such a renewed big focus on well-being and mental health at work, how can employers ensure that the well-being strategies they have acknowledge the specific challenges faced by black people? Um... (sighs) I have so much that I uh,
1: – the first thing is I challenge that people are really interested in well-being in any significant way in terms of workplaces. The second thing is that if you most – well, creating an inclusive environment kind of works for everybody. It's not like black people have a special vulnerability or women have a special vulnerability. It's just that when, a, when it's like wearing the shoe that's designed for the wrong size foot – And what I'm saying is if if the shoe is just a little bit bigger, if we just make this space a little bit bigger, then people can operate with lots of difference inside, uh, lots of wiggle room. And I I suppose for black people, what you want is to have your blackness acknowledged in a way that is respectful and, and speaks to dignity and doesn't erase who you are. You don't want to be tone policed and told that, you know, the way you talk is inappropriate because let's face it, in most professional environments, we're, you know, we're not really talking about black people coming in with a deep patois. We're just talking about the fact that they can be identified as black on the phone when people complain about these things. And so I just think the bar is so low. But, and the same kinds of behaviors, trusting, emotionally literate, psychologically safe environments, they just work for everybody. So it's not even special. The reason that I question whether people are really interested in well-being is because we keep on doing things. We keep on having interventions to ameliorate uh, and to help with their well-being. So we have rooms where you can go and do zen out for five minutes. We've got yoga classes beforehand. We've got all kinds of stuff. We've got uh, um, uh, memberships to gyms and uh, uh, back in the old days uh, uh, and things like that. But when, when we all know that the number one component of stress at work, the number one element is not your workload, it is the way you are treated by your direct manager and your direct team. So if we're interested in well-being, why not upskill direct managers? And not just the ones at the top, but everybody. Because that, to me, is the real answer. Because instead of armoring people for their well-being, because that's what you're doing, that's what... That's what the, the, the gym membership or the, the sleep pod or the something else, it, it's just armoring people. Instead of doing that, just don't wound them with your work environment.
0: Yeah, I guess there's loads of examples, right, where you know we, we we could probably both answer this in the same way, but a free gym membership isn't going to make up for the fact that I might have a boss that's homophobic and makes me feel really uncomfortable at work uh, or, in your instance, might be racist. That kind of, that knocks everything else out. Nothing else you do will make up for that one fundamental thing. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you that lots of this well-being stuff seems to be just putting patches on. You know, we are working you we are overworking you you're working long hours but here's a mindfulness app to compensate for you. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean to me the the I know it's not really in vogue but I have I've been into an office just before lockdown that had these the sleep pod thing is to me one of the most telling elements of this whole program because I want you to. I want you to sleep at home, I, I, and I and that means if I don't have, if that means I can't call you after six, then that's that's what we do because I want you to sleep at home. If you're having to take to steal ten minute grabs of sleep at, at work, what is that? What are we doing to people?
0: And yeah, this is coming from a guy who has dedicated his life now to increasing performance in organisations. So yeah, yeah you are telling people they don't need to be working with you all the hours. They don't need to be working flat out for you to get the best performance from them.
1: I'm because I'm, because you don't have to be a psychologist or an expert in in the human condition to understand that. If I say to you, um, you know what? Uh, to next Thursday, there's going to be a moment where there's going to be a morning thing. I really could use your support. It's going to mean you getting up at four or you, and my team has done this with me, stayed up until 10, but then I'm like, I better not see you tomorrow morning. Uh, And that's not because I don't want work to be done. It's because I know that we do really sensitive, important stuff. And I don't need you compromised cognitively because I insist in presenteeism. You know, I'm sure you, you've you looked into it a thousand times, but the UK productivity is so poor in part because the UK still clings to the idea that I need to see you in the place. The number of workplaces even now who still say to people, you know, I'm the senior partner. I've got a little pied-à-terre across the street from my office so I can get in at six o'clock, but you live in zone nine and I still expect you to be in before me and leave after me. It's just like, no.
0: So and it's it's going going to, I, want,
1: I want people to work hard. I just smart hard.
0: And it's going to, I, you know, for many, it's going to go back to that, right? When, it, when, when lockdown is fully eased, the command and control will come back. And the idea that if I can't see you doing work, you're not doing any work, see, is going to come straight I, into some organization. See,
1: that's, why, that's why I think the new normal is a bad idea. That's why even the title of the new normal is a bad idea. The new normal says to me, the same as the old plus or minus a couple of changes that we have to make to deal with a particular virus. I say cultural clean slate. Has it ever been necessary to be observed to do good work? If it has, your recruitment program is crap. Mm. Full stop. If, you lit- if you're telling me that you can't trust your employees to work unless you are looking at them through glass or across a partition in an open plan office, you have chosen poorly okay. and so i think we need to start saying do we what do what does great look like for performance for, for productivity for well-being and these things are not i think people think they're opposite ends of the seesaw here is well-being and nice and fluffy and then here is hard work and getting it done and they're not they are distributed across this thing and i think there is a place of balance where you can get great work without burning people out. How about make it so that people don't want to be in this job? You, you hear it about people who go to the Middle East and they say, I, I just want to, I'm going to this place. I'm going to be worked like a dog for three years, but I'll make loads of money and then I'm leaving. But maybe we want to have a different environment where you just, you never want to leave. I and mean, you're, you're still going to work really hard, but I'm going to recognize when you have that day that you're a bit a bit off and say, hey, you know what? How about just take half a day? See you tomorrow, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Um, we are in the midst of what I guess we all hope is going to be this growing anti-racist sentiment in society or societies across the world. Uh, we are also in the middle of a pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we've kind of touched upon it that, you know, coronavirus has highlighted very different ways in which employees are handling the pandemic due to their personal circumstances. Um, it's also highlighted a huge disparity between the challenges of black employees and white employees. Um, uh, the ONS reported about two weeks ago that one in eight people have no access to a garden or shared outside space and that black people were four times more likely to not have access to outside space than white people. Um, so we can see the virus is disproportionately affecting and actually killing black people as well. When We look at the, the results mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, so you know, even in the midst of all this, we can see black people, black employees being affected differently and unequally. Um and, and it seems like there's a need for employers to fix the system. So we're offering equal access to tools and opportunities for black employees. So that equality isn't enough, is it? Do we have to rebuild HR? Do we have to rebuild our cultures?
1: No, well, HR is, is going to have to really respond here. Talk about, an, uh, if you consider it as an organism, this it's an organism that's going to go from 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 fish to mammal. It's that level of, of growth that's required in HR for it to be fit for purpose. And it's not because HR is terrible. It's because HR's always it's always been underfunded. It's always been the kind of compliance center, reward center, the, the stuff that's perfunctory. And the future is human. I know people think it's AI, it's something else. That will change how work is done, but it will never stop being the fact that the future is human. And, and so HR is going to be a key part of that understanding the differential needs of our population is going to be a part of what HR has to do, but that has to be delivered through all leaders and all managers. And it can't just be, you know, you see that so often, right? That there's a problem and somebody just looks, the the boardroom just looks to HR, HRD solve this. It's like, no, no, no. People is all our problem. It's all our challenge. It's all our opportunity. And I think HR has got to be prepared to lead on that basis and smart CEOs have got to empower them to deliver on that basis.
0: Um, and I guess p- part of the reason why I asked that question was um, I saw on LinkedIn this morning somebody made a post about the um, the removal of the uh, Edward Colston statue in Bristol, mm-hmm. pretty pretty close to my home, um, and they were basically applauding that that, that happening. And they received, they also screen grabbed and posted some of the responses they had from people, CEOs and MDs of businesses and HR people telling them that this wasn't appropriate for LinkedIn. These anti-racist sentiments were not the place on LinkedIn and that business wasn't a place to be discussing this kind of thing, which just blew my mind. It feels like there's a unique opportunity to push this forwards in the workplace, probably, possibly more so than outside of it.
1: I mean, uh, this is, I've been saying this every day for the last two weeks. It is not enough to be not racist anymore. It is at bare minimum enough to be anti-racist. And if people are upset about this statue being knocked down, the statue of a slaver being pulled down and thrown into the ocean, the thing I would encourage them to think about is if somebody decided they were going to replace it, with a statue of Hitler and said, well, he was a really good musician. Or if they were going to replace it with a statue of Jimmy Savile and said he raised millions for charity, w- would that seem like the right thing to do? And, and is it only not, is there a certain number of years? Like, so Hitler's wrong because it was X number, was X tens of years ago, but Savile, that, that's, that's, that's okay because it was only a few years ago slavery I didn't think it was controversial to say slavery is bad and maybe we shouldn't celebrate the people who profited off it that's
0: that's not controversial I would not have tipped it into the sea so yeah I I think my only regret was I didn't know it was going on because it was fairly close to me that I couldn't go along and join in but it was um Yeah, it was really symbolic, obviously. You know, I've spent a lot of time in Bristol. Bristol's got an incredibly rich black history. So anyone who knows anything about Bristol knows that there's been very anti-Colston sentiment for a long, long time. Um, But I think what really struck me was what would I do as a manager if I had somebody in my workplace that tweeted or put a LinkedIn update that said that kind of thing, that this wasn't the place for it. We shouldn't be discussing racism at work how do what's your advice how would how would a a white manager or a person of color who isn't black handle that kind of a conversation
1: I mean I I think it's the same for anybody who's a manager right so if somebody just puts up well this is not the place for it that's an opinion and I just don't have much to say about that that's fine if you think that my response would simply be to click the block button and we wouldn't be engaged anymore right but if it's somebody within your workplace or if it's on Yammer or something that's internal then then my response is to say This is our company, just sending you a link to our company's very explicit anti-racist position. We don't find it controversial that people don't want a statue of a slaver. What we would say is that we don't uh, sanction vandalism. And so we might have preferred as an organization a different means to remove this. However, removing this remains the right thing to do. I mean, I'm not even a comms person, but to me, that's that's not walking a tightrope we're anti-racist here's a person who built i mean imagine how many bodies are on somebody who had enough money to build a city
0: yeah i think what's quite interesting about that i I think that comment and i've actually seen a few things like that on on places like linkedin is i think it gets to the heart of um and I, i had to unfollow somebody on twitter the other day actually yesterday because uh this person hadn't tweeted anything in support of Black Lives Matter, but tweeted to say that people shouldn't be injuring uh, a police force. And I kind of thought you've been watching all of this stuff. And that's what you picked out. And I don't advocate hurting horses, clearly. But that kind of and, and I guess my sentiment for that kind of thing is if your company's making a stand and people are not making a stand or saying stuff that is not not racist in itself, but is not anti-racist. Is not in line with the public sentiment. Isn't in line with the the, the like you mentioned the kind of statements or policies of the company. How do we deal with those people? Because they might so, not but yeah. we're trying to get people from not racist to anti-racist. I'm 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 actually trying to
1: say that when you employ people, there are a set of criteria for their technical excellence. When you employ people, there should also be a set of criteria for their cultural excellence. So this does not mean everybody has to be liberal or conservative. This is not about party politics. Yeah. This is not even about agreeing on, on social polity, policies and things like that. But there are some red lines. If you believe in apartheid, you probably can't work for me. All right? If you believe in slavery, probably can't work for me. If you, there are some political parties that are far right and, and actually far left that perhaps those would be unsavory. But I'm into deliberation. Workplaces of the future are going to be focuses of deliberation, deliberation about the purpose of organization, about the societal larger purpose, as well as the kind of strategic business purpose of organizations. And so you should be able to have a forum where people can say, you know what, this is my worry right now. I am worried that people are out there. There's a perfectly legitimate debate. I'm a public health uh, officer, if you like, I'm the NHS director. So <clears throat> there's a perfectly legitimate conversation about I'm really worried that the very people who are most at risk to, t- to COVID, black and brown people, as well as their allies, are out in the streets right now, and that's dangerous. And I would say, yes, that is dangerous. And here's why it's important that this, this movement happens. And this is what I would say to ameliorate it. Can we wear masks? Can we be really smart about that? So you can have that debate. And I think that kind of deliberation makes organizations stronger, but the kind of leaders required to have that, because it can't again, just be left to HR, yeah. the kind of leaders required to have that conversation are a different caliber than the ones we currently mandate. Right now you get elevated to management on the basis of technical excellence or p your profit and loss, what you bring into the organization for the future. That is not going to be enough. We need managers who can handle the complexities of diverse teams with diverse cognitive uh, uh, functions and diverse opinions and backgrounds. And that's going to mean friction, which is going to form great movement for for teams, but it's going to need to be managed.
0: Uh, I guess the last point I wanted to talk to you about. So behind you, you have Yoda. Anatagis, as I'm talking to you, I resisted the urge to get my R2D2 and C3PO. That looked too staged if I put it behind me. Um, but I read an article you wrote a couple of years ago about everyday activism, and you talked about becoming an everyday Jedi. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I uh, I think
1: so. I I thought I was a Jedi since I was seven years old, and nothing has changed. I I love science fiction. Uh, I Asimov. Um, I'm trying to think if I can paraphrase it. Asimov was my favorite when I was really young, 11, 10, 11, reading Asimov. And he said that many people, paraphrase, think that science fiction is stuff and nonsense. But actually, science fiction is a... as uh, a, a metaphor for the human condition, essentially. It, it, it is a way that we can describe our experience. And so for me, I was always I was enthused by Star Wars and the idea that... There were people out there forget the lightsabers there were people out there whose sole purpose was to use this power within them to make the galaxy a better place and that's why i'm a psychologist because it's the closest thing i could get to the idea that by simply fixing my eyes on you and having a conversation moderating my tone making sure that i see only you that in this moment you can create an almost therapeutic environment That, to me, was the closest thing I could get to being a Jedi. And I think that's what HR people can be at their very best. It's what leaders within organizations can and should be if they want to get the best out of people. The idea that you are willing to tap into who you are to connect authentically with somebody else to create something that's gestalt, bigger than the both of you.
0: I've um in this cabinet behind me I don't you probably can't see it but at the bottom there is a model of William Hartnell um oh excellent a model of Daleks and there's also an r 2 Tom um, Baker my uh, my doctor uh, oh really yeah he probably was the best a little bit before my time but
1: mm-hmm. uh, guess, oh but. there we go <laughs> he's
0: old <laughs> um but I think I, I, it's interesting to talk about sci-fi because I remember talking telling somebody about Doctor Who and they asked why as a grown man I was still watching Doctor Who some years ago and Living in Cardiff, you know, we were became the centre of Doctor Who, and uh, it was uh, it was fascinating. I kind of explained to them that I thought it was social commentary. I genuinely thought that in most episodes of Doctor Who, we were being we were seeing more progressive than we were on ATV. We were seeing um, uh, same gender kisses, and we were seeing people who were kind of uh, um, non gendered, kind of having relationships, and uh, you know, Star Wars. I think has been um,
1: it's been at the cutting edge of this from, almost from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, and even this week, right, their support of John Boyega and his stance, kind of they were one of the first out there to say that we stand with you completely. Exactly. And it feels like there's a a nice lesson in there for employers about kind of standing up and supporting your employees because you care, right? It doesn't really matter whether they were black or white. You care about people. You want the right people. You want people to live happy well and satisfied lives.
1: It's a good, I think, so the the, the thing I've remembered now, it's, as said, it's an existential metaphor for the human condition, science fiction. And and the reason that's really pertinent for us is because we are tank. Science fiction came about as human beings were writing stories about how technology might kill us. That's really how it started. Robots came from the idea of the Industrial Revolution, people losing their jobs, not to mention their arms in the mills. Uh, the early stories were all about how we we're going to get destroyed by technology, but then Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars came along and all of a sudden there was this integration and the idea that 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 technology, AI, the future, and this diverse cast of people can come together and against the greatest of odds, they can overcome. There's the future.
0: Very nice. Um one last thing before we go you have been on my television screen for most of the week (laughs) you know um you've spoken a lot there's been a huge amount of love for you on social media and and kind of your sentiments and what you've had to say this week what's kind of the one thing you'd like to say to the people that are listening at the moment about kind of what you've learned over the last few weeks
1: so there's there's tons of things that you as an organization uh, people listening to this as an organization are going to have to consider but the most fundamental thing is what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And and the biggest things that you can do are all completely invisible. Nobody will tweet your their thanks. Nobody will like your thing. It's self-reflection. It's the idea that you embrace your winces. Those moments, whether it's as a HR officer or just as a person, you feel like you haven't done enough, whether it be for about race or sex or anything else. Embrace that wince because that pain is a great lesson and it causes us to want to avoid that pain in the future, which makes us more likely to act. And that's really the key. Individuals looking at their environment, the two people in the office with them, the three people in their home and saying, this place will represent my standards of anti-racism, anti-misogyny, anti-homophobia, anti anti anti-immigration sentiment, all of these things. And that's that's the way we make change. And again, it's it's invisible because it happens inside your home, happens inside your office. It rarely gets tweeted out, but it makes a difference.
0: John Amici, thank you so much. Pleasure, thank you. As the world comes to terms with the COVID-19 crisis, SirCal want to help HR leaders look to the future. Will the crisis shift the world of work for good? What will this look like and how should HR leaders help prepare their business? These are the questions that Kevin Green and the resident Circle experts will consider as part of the Shifting World of Work content series. Visit Circal.co.uk to find out how you can get free access to Circal's up-to-the-minute news, research and opinion for you and your team today.